unless I see the nails in his hands and put my finger into the nail marks and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. How would we like our entire lives to be remembered for only one thing that we've done? How would we like to be remembered as, say, a Brutus or a Benedict Arnold? Our lives etched in the collective memory of the ages for a single act of treachery. Justly or justly, this is how many figures in the scriptures are remembered. Their entire lives are defined by a single act that they committed. We remember Cain, for example, for the murder of his brother, Abel. We remember Pilate for his cowardly judgment of Jesus. And we remember the Apostle Thomas for nothing else than his refusal to believe the other apostles' testimony to the resurrection of Jesus. Whether history's remembrance of Brutus or Benedict Arnold, or Scripture's remembrance of Cain or Pilate or Thomas, does justice to their overall lives, that's not for us to determine. The question, in fact, is moot. Justly or unjustly, these men have been remembered in these ways. And as a result, they have become powerful religious and cultural icons, measures even, according to which we judge our own lives. Our collective remembrance of these men shapes even our language. We can raise Cain and disrupt the lives of others, especially our superiors. Or we can wash our hands of responsibility for something which we are in fact responsible. Or we can become a doubting Thomas and disbelieve something worthy of belief. The Apostle Thomas especially maintains a strong cultural presence among us as a type of rule against which we measure our moral lives in particular regarding the strength or weakness of our faith. When in the midst of life's difficulties we find our confidence or trust in the goodness of others shaken, or when our faith in the Lord begins to wane, we can rush to identify ourselves with the incredulous apostle. We might even call ourselves a doubting Thomas. But I wonder whether this is a good thing. Should we be quick to identify ourselves and our weakness of faith or the weakness of the faith of others with the incredulity of St. Thomas? Or is his doubt a special case through which we learn something deeper about the gift of faith? To answer these questions, let's take a close look at today's gospel. Though Thomas was absent from the upper room on Easter night, he nevertheless had everything that he needed to believe that the Lord was risen. He was familiar with the Old Testament prophecies pointing ahead to the Lord's dying and rising. He heard Jesus himself speak 
of his impending death and resurrection. And on Easter night, even though he himself did not see the Lord, he heard the witness of the ten apostles and the other disciples who did see the Lord. And no doubt he began to see how the lives of his friends and companions were beginning to change already because of their encounter with the risen Christ. These realities, Thomas' knowledge of Scripture and the witness of his companions, should have been enough to spark the gift of faith in his heart. After all, these realities are enough to enkindle faith in us. How else do we come to know of and to believe in the resurrection of Jesus but through the scriptures, the witness of the apostles, the preaching of the church, and the conversions of people around us? If anything else were were required for faith, we would not be here this morning. But for Thomas, these realities were not enough. He wanted something more. Thomas's doubt, therefore, was not a result of mere weakness or of confusion or of some lack of trust. His doubt was willful. Thomas refused to believe unless the truth of the resurrection would be communicated to him in some unique way. He would not believe, he declared, until he could touch the wounds of the risen Lord, something it appears that no one yet had been invited to do. By Thomas's own design, his faith was to be special, a faith unlike the faith of others because it would be built on an experience that he alone would have. We should think here of the fall of Lucifer, who rejected the gift of divine beatitude, not because it was a gift of grace, but also, according to the Thomas tradition, divine beatitude was offered him as something to be shared in common with the other angels, and with men. The prideful desire to be unique, to stand out, to receive something special, this was the desire of Lucifer. And this desire is what makes Thomas's doubt not only unfortunate, but dangerous. And this is why his doubt is hopefully different from our moments of weakness of faith. From time to time, we might fail to give assent to the truth of the gospel out of fear or of error or of ignorance. But Thomas's doubt was different. He refused to believe until God had singled him out for a special gift. This is a dangerous demand for the creature to make of God. It is prideful. It is arrogant. And God is under no compulsion to acquiesce to such demands. Jesus is under no compulsion to prove his resurrection to us, each individually 
and in a unique way. In fact, he has nothing to prove to us at all, except as we see in response to Thomas's prideful demands, his divine love and mercy. One of the things that should strike us today about, about today's gospel is that, yet again, God humbly condescends to a prideful and arrogant creature. And in his mercy, God overcomes the creature's sin to remove his defect and heal the creature in order to draw the creature again to himself. And isn't this how it always is between God and man? Isn't this the basic storyline of salvation history? Over and again, God condescends to us. He condescends to Adam and Eve. He condescends to the Israelites in the desert. He condescends to Peter and Thomas and the other apostles. And he acquiesces to our prideful demands. Not because he has to, but because he wants to. This merciful condescension of God to his fallen creation shapes the whole of the life of Christ. The Lord's incarnation, his public ministry, the paschal mystery, the whole of Christ's life and mission is one great act of mercy in which God, despite the demands of prideful man, acts on our behalf and proves to us nothing Nothing but his love and his mercy. In the late 6th century, St. Gregory the Great wrote when commenting on today's gospel, the disbelief of Thomas has done more for our faith than the faith of the other disciples. Now, why would St. Gregory have said this? Perhaps because he realized that Thomas's doubt in view of his sinful Willful pride. Thomas's doubt became one more occasion on which God condescended to man and thereby revealed to us the absolute love of his merciful heart. My brothers and sisters, this second Sunday of Easter, this feast of divine mercy, is not a day on which we should become doubting Thomases in the strict sense of the term. Today is not a day on which we make prideful demands of the Lord. We do not ask him to come to us and save us by any special favor. After all, what more could the Lord do for us that he has not already done? Instead, today we run to him in mind and heart, in faith, hope, and charity, we run to him in the scriptures. We run to him in the preaching and witness of the church. We run to him in the confessional. We run to him in the fruits of his grace that we see in others. We run to him in the Eucharist. And we run to him simply to embrace him and to embrace the saving love he has for us. We run to him this morning to proclaim, like the believing Thomas, my Lord and my God. 
Amen. Alleluia.